Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 28, 2016. This is episode 1753 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Monday, it's Listener Feedback Monday. That means this is uh, responses to emails. Most of them received in the last week. You send those emails to jack at com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC in the subject line. Again, TSPC in the subject line. And then question, comment, idea, whatever for Jack, right? Then give me your point uh, or ask your question in one or two sentences. Hit the return key a couple times. Give me your details. Trust me, you'll be more likely to get through screening with the total volume of email I have if you do it that way. I'm just looking out for you. It's not really me being a pain in the ass. It's me telling you with the volume I have. That's the format I need to be able to get through your emails. So, um... What are we going to talk about today? What do we have queued up? I, well, I have a bunch of questions today that are on diverse topics that we don't talk about all the time, which I, I really like to get into as much diversity as I can in these shows. I actually worked a little bit harder weeding through some more questions to try to find some stuff that wasn't the same questions we get over and over. And uh, so I have a question today about cooking, my favorite way to cook quail. I'm actually going to give you two ways to do it. Both are super simple. One's so simple you'll think it can't be that easy, but it is. Um, we're also going to have we have a couple questions on 401ks, uh, catching up and what to do when you leave a job. I'm going to talk about a man that was uh, threatened with a felony conviction for handing out a pamphlet uh, about jury nullification. He happened to do it near a courthouse, which is where he really got into some trouble. We talked about this in the past. There's some updates on that case, including the state dropping the uh, the felony charge. But continuing on with a misdemeanor charge, and I actually have a segment from a news uh, segment that I'm actually going to play for you on air for that one. We're going to talk about cryptocurrency, uh, specifically that the, the Bank of England is coming out with its own cryptocurrency. Gee, it seems like somebody told you that something like that would happen. But really what I want to talk about is how the mainstream, when it comes to things like cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology, Bitcoin, all that stuff, is always like five steps behind the advance of the free market. Like, they just don't get it. Like, they're trying to do what Bitcoin did five years ago, but they're trying to strip out what made it successful, and they think this is going to work because they're the Bank of England. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work out really well for them. And we'll talk about where the currency was only the first step. And we're going to talk a little bit about a thing called BitNation. I talked a long time ago about the concept of us developing our own virtual nations. And, like, right after I did that, this, this concept showed up with a kind of an attempt to roll out a thing called BitNation. And I've been kind of unimpressed at the advancement of BitNation up till now, and I still think they have a long, long way to go just for a framework that lets people start to figure out how this would work. But they're getting there, and it looks like they haven't... Like, a lot of these things come up, and people come out with an idea, and then they publicize it, and then they just, like, fade away. And I understand why. We all have to, like, make a living and, and do things like that. But it looks like... There is some momentum behind this, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I'm going to talk about getting uh, from zero to reasonable efficiency with firearms when you just really don't have much experience. You've invested in your first firearms. You're working with an instructor, but yet now I've got these different guns, and how do I proceed? And I'm going to talk about, at the end, grill selection. Uh, somebody asked me about the Big Green Egg, which is a really popular cooker, um, and what alternatives there are to it, and I have some thoughts on that. So... 
It's going to be a great show today. Before we get into all these great topics, let's get some historical perspective and take a look at the year that was the episode. This is what was going on in the year 1753. This comes to us from Alex Shrugged, a number one contributor at TSPWiki.com, the survival, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance wiki. I have Between Prejudice and Principle, The Marriage Act, a comedy, and Oh Say Can You See. Well, I'll just tell you, James McHenry is born. He was a surgeon during the American Revolution, and Fort McHenry was named after him, and there was a poem written called The Defense of Fort McHenry. It's better known today as a Star-Spangled Banner. So the man who's, who that fort was named for, uh, Francis Scott Key, penned The Star-Spangled Banner uh, as he was, uh, it, well, as, as uh, Francis Scott Key was held prisoner on a British ship over Fort McHenry. The McHenry himself was born this year. I'm going to read for you a Mar The Marriage Act of Comedy because it's a setup for Wednesday's show, actually. If you are married, then you are married. A religious ceremony is acceptable but not required. Promises are made. Gifts on condition of marriage are often given. Amen. This is 1753 we're talking about here. Contracts are negotiated, and when everyone is agreeable, you consummate the marriage, or maybe before that. If something goes wrong in the midst of these negotiations, you need some serious legal help sorting out who said what to whom. If I put out money for an expensive ring and then find out that she's already engaged to three other guys and her pet cat, I should be able to get my ring back. And it works the other way, too. If a young miss has given up suitors in order to marry me, then I skip out. She should be able to keep the ring. In order for the courts to sort out these cases, the English Parliament passes a law requiring that all marriages be licensed by the state and the ceremony take place or that a public announcement be made. Both parties must be 21 years of age or older unless given permission by their parents. Jews and Quakers are the exceptions to this marriage law. This is the first time the modern law imposes regulations rather than guidelines for marriage. My take by Alex Shrugged. Well, this was a popular law because after the 1750s, people were worried about verbal promises not being fulfilled or being misunderstood. In fact, the first comic books appear this time, and the most popular one covers what happens when a young Tom promises marriage to a fair young lass, and she's pregnant. And then Tom's father dies, and Tom comes into a considerable inheritance. Suddenly, he forgets his promises and starts frequenting bordellos. It's called sequential art at the time. It won't be called a comic until the 1840s. Also, two of the more popular plays in the 1700s are com comedies based on the idea of making promises to marry and then everything falling apart on technicalities. I've seen this thing, theme over and over again in situational comedies where a couple is married for a long time and suddenly finds out that because the preacher failed to do something correctly, fill in the blank with some technicality, the couple's not really married. Uh, they have a second chance to decide if they want to be married. This actually happened to my wife and me when we discovered a flaw in our marriage contract. Yes, I married her again. Um, I'm not going to say much about this because Wednesday's show, I'm going to have uh, someone on the, the, the show we're going to call Token uh, off our forum. And we're going to actually discuss stateless marriage. And I'm just going to leave my take on it until we have that show. How perfect is that? But it does kind of show you that... The state decided to intervene when people couldn't figure out how to solve their own problems, and that just seems to be a recurring theme through history. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, before we get to your stuff, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. 
Hey, folks, have you ever wondered how I seem to know so much about so many things in the self-reliance industry? Well, one reason why is that I've been a loyal subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine for over 20 years. With great writers like Masada Yub, Jackie Clay, and Dave Duffy, they have it all, from homesteading to guns to libertarian views, along with a great website and forum. Check them out at backwoodshome.com to learn more. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5-10% to of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Alright, getting into it. Uh, the first question that I have today comes from a guy named Tim. Tim says... Real simple question. What is your favorite recipe for quail? Um, quail is something I really love to cook. And one of the big things I like about it is it cooks quickly. So if you're making a whole bunch of them, you're not out there a long time. And so there's something I like to cook for guests. And I actually have a bunch of different ways to cook quail, whether cooking them whole or parting them out where you have like the leg and the, the little leg and the little drumstick, or not the drumstick, the thigh, separated from the breast. That's actually a cool way to do it, but that's not how I'm going to talk about doing it today. My absolute favorite way to do quail, and you can do this either go ahead and part them out and save your little little thigh leggy things to do something separate with, and they're great sautéed. They cook a little faster than the breast, and that's one reason that it's it's okay or a good idea to separate them. But what I'm about to give you, this recipe works whether you have um, skin on, skin off, either way. So when I butcher quail, I always skin them because it's just faster. right? But if, you, if you're buying them or if you have a little plucker or you're willing to do the plucking yourself, this works fine skin on as well. So all we do is if we haven't already done so, we cut the backbone out of the, the quail, and we lay it down, and we push down on the breast, and it'll go crack. And basically, you break the breast, so it, we, we pancake it out if we're going to leave it whole. Okay? And then, I mean, again, you're not going to believe the simplicity of this, and it's because it doesn't need much. We get a skillet. We get it hot. Not screaming hot where it's smoking, but just under the smoke point for the grease and the oil. We're going to season our quail with this really complex seasoning. Salt, pepper, and garlic powder or garlic granules. Either one. Okay? That's it. And we're going to season it really well in the back and the front. And then we're going to throw it with the... We're going to start out with the bone side down into this hot pan. And we're going to cook it for a couple minutes like that. Actually about a minute like that to start warming the meat through. And we're going to flip it over. We're going to cook it till it browns, uh, and however long that takes. And it's usually a couple more minutes. We're going to just do this with high heat, guys, okay? This is not low and slow. This is, and you'll have to play with it to where you get comfortable with it. And then we're going to flip it back over on the bone side. We're going to kind of test it with our finger to make sure it's cooked through. If it's not cooked through, we'll drop the heat down a little bit, throw a lid on it for like a minute or two, because it's just small birds. It'll cook through for you. And if, if, if you're in doubt, you know, make one. Because this is like, you get to where you, I can't tell you how long, I don't use a, I, I look at it and I know. So cook one that way, and when you think it's done, take it out, taste it. If it's overcooked, then cut your time back. If it's undercooked, just throw it back in there and finish it, and then you kind of have a feel for what it looks like, what it feels like. And what you're trying to do here, if you're cooking the whole bird, is you're balancing. You're balancing, not overcooking the little drumettes with making sure the breast is fully cooked. And butterfly out, much better way to do that. Okay, the next one is just a real simple play 
on something dove hunters have been doing for all eternity. This one, you may really want to think about going ahead and parting that bird out and, and, and building a little bag full of little drumettes because it's a great thing to do on the side. I'll even give you one idea for, for how to do that. Um, but you could do this with whole birds too, and it's a little bit slower method, and you want to go on a lower cooking temperature, and you want to use good quality bacon for this. All we're going to take to do the little bird, we're going to hold it up so we're looking down at the breast, and there's that breastbone that divides the bird in half. He's got left and right side of the breast. We're going to take a knife, a sharp knife, and we're going to cut a little incision on both sides of that bone about center of the breast. Into each little sliver, we're going to stick in there a slice of jalapeno pepper. Fresh, I prefer over pickled, but you can use pickled in a pinch. Um, if you want to take it a little further, make your slit a little bit bigger and, and, and cut up some garlic cloves into like little matchsticks. Like they're not going to be long like a match, but about as big around as a matchstick or about as big square as a matchstick. And pop one or two on both sides of the pepper. Wrap the whole bird in bacon. Did the best thing to do here, even though there's a little bit of meat on the wings, they're kind of in the way. If you're doing this method, so just cut the wings off with shears if you don't already do that. I don't try to save the wings on a quail. So wrap the bird up. If the bird's been butterflied, so if that backbone's been removed, and mine always have because that's how I butcher them, you could take some more pepper and put it inside that cavity when you fold it closed and let just the, the flavor cook through or a couple cloves of garlic in there are nice too. Wrap it up with bacon. Wrap it like you're wrapping uh, an injury with an ace bandage. You're pulling your bacon so that it, you get a nice tight wrap. And then you're going to cook it on one side and then the other on the grill until the ba bacon is maybe not crisp, but done. And you're going to do this on a lower temperature, like a medium hot heat. And you base this with a mixture. It's one part Worcestershire, three part soy sauce, three part beer. And you're going to just baste it with that as it cooks. Um, if you want to get a little more flavor into the bird, you can sprinkle that that basting mixture, especially in the back side of it, on the bone side, if you've got the the, uh, the backbone cut out of it, because it kind of steams through the meat. Give it a little bit on the uh, on the bird itself before you wrap it. Another great way to get that flavor in there: take your birds and paint them with that that baste. Let it let it sit out and air dry for about five minutes before you wrap the bacon. It'll get kind of sticky. It'll adhere to it. When you're actually brushing this on, when you're cooking, you won't have, you know, your biggest concern about getting any kind of a burn there is going to be the baking grease. So you have to think about, like, leave enough space on your grill where you can move your birds around, and it's, it's fantastic. You can do this, like, low and slow, really, with cover down, indirect heat and whatever, but I, I feel that quail often get overcooked that way. They're better on direct heat. And you do that, and you will you will swear to God you've you've gone to quell Nirvana heaven. Okay, here's another little recipe that you can do. So let's say you've taken off all your little um, your little drumettes, right? You've got your your little leg and your little thigh. You've cut those off, and you have a whole bunch of them. What we're gonna do with those? We're gonna take some uh, olive oil or some bacon grease is even better, or some lard. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get that into our pan. We're gonna get that nice and hot. And we're going to saute, just saute them, just fry them up until they're done. And we're going to take them off. Now, you could do a bunch of stuff here. You, after you've done that, they'll be kind of sticky because they've come out of the oil. You give them a little hit with salt and pepper, and you call it good. That's one way to do it. If you want to push it over the top, 
give them a little bit of a heat and sweet with like an Asian flair. So before you make them, go up ahead and make this sauce. So um, use a little bit of uh, rice wine vinegar, a couple tablespoons of honey, uh, about a third of a cup of good quality soy sauce, um, a couple teaspoons, tablespoons of uh, sesame oil, and some good Asian chili garlic sauce, whatever your choice is there. Add some minced garlic. And uh, just bring that all kind of up to temperature together in a pan. If you want to add a little bit more bump to it, give it just a little bit of lemongrass or a little bit of ginger. Either one of those are nice additions or both of them. And you have you, so you you cook that through really gently, so it just begins to simmer. Stir it up and keep it separate. Okay. If you put that on those little legs when you throw them in a the pan, they'll stick. They'll burn. So when they come out, then you drizzle that over them and then get some toasted sesame seeds and hit them with that and serve that to your, your football buddies for something totally different, huh? And it, it doesn't take, like, becoming like Chef Keith Snow to be able to do that. That's a really simple thing. And you can, if you have, like, a pre-made kind of hot, sweet Thai style or uh, Japanese style or Chinese style hot sauce you like and you don't want to make up what I just gave you, you can use that. Just warm it before you put it on those wings and then hit them with the sesame seeds. It's really, really awesome. Or I'm on those uh, little little drum hats. Like I do chicken wings that way, and they're fantastic. So that's like your bonus recipe today. That's a long time on quail, so let's go on to something else. Um, this next one comes in. I think we have a terminology differential here, so I'm going to go ahead and, and correct it for Dean, who sent this in. It says, I turned 50 this year, and I'm now eligible, eligible to make quote-unquote, catch-up contributions to an IRA. Is this a worthwhile investment? Is If so, how much? Background, I work for the Department of the Army as a federal employee. We get a 4% match and half of the next 2% on matched IRAs. I expect to retire at 65. I'm just wondering, with the coming shift, if continuing with IRAs is worthwhile or if I should look into some other investment strategy for the money I would have used to catch up. Thanks in advance, Dean. Okay, so... There's two totally different worlds here, 401ks and IRAs. And generally speaking, when your employer's matching something, okay, when your employee's managing a program for you, you don't have an IRA, you have a 401k. But you said you work for the Department of the Army as a federal employee. Th those... Entities have been doing some things to push people off of traditional retirement, and one has been an IRA-like thing that's been proposed for soldiers even in lieu of the 20-year retirement plan, etc. Okay, so I'm not sure which one you're really in there. And I'm not sure if you have a free-for-all IRA or an IRA with some containment as to what you can do with it, because I feel very differently about these two things. An IRA is simply... It's like a tent around your investments. And the tent has very little to say with what you can invest in, what mutual funds you can buy. You can even do real estate in there, though it's probably not the best idea, but it, it's possible. You get the point. If I want to buy Exxon stock inside my IRA, I can. If I want to sell it tomorrow, I can. If I want to go and invest in options inside an IRA, I can If I want to buy a gold ETF or a silver ETF in my IRA, I can. If I want to put it all into a cash fund, I can. If I want to go into government bonds, I can do anything I want, really, with some small limitations in an IRA. 
a 401k that your employer manages, or maybe some hybrid IRA thingy that the federal government has, almost always comes with, since you are not responsible enough to know how to invest your money, then we are going to tell you these things are within the realm of what you're allowed to invest in, and then you're controlled. I feel slightly different here from one to the next, but then I'm still going to tell you how I'm going to make this decision. You're able to make catch-up contributions. I don't know what the limits on that are. But you get 4% matched and half of the next 2% matched on IRAs. You expect to retire at 65 and you're wondering about the shift. Let's put the shift on the shelf for a minute. Okay. So what you're telling me is you get a 100% return. You double your money, okay? You double your money immediately, absolutely immediately on your first 4%. You're also only 10 years from retirement. And if you do retire early, and if this is an IRA, 59 and a half, you can begin withdrawals. So if you're 50, you're either nine and a half, okay, or 14 and a half years-ish away from having access to this money. So the question is, is 100% return guarantee over 10 to 15 years, in other words, effectively doubling your money and guarantee a good idea? In different times, in different situations, I'd say maybe, right? But the truth is, right now, that's a pretty damn good deal. Now, I also have, you know, is this conventional or is it Roth? If it's conventional, you get a great big tax deduction now, but you're going to pay tax on the money later. If it's a Roth, then you're going to pay tax on this money that you're putting away, but you're never going to pay tax on it again. I like the second one better than the first. But I'd seriously consider this. For that 4%. On the next two, you get a 50% return. In other words, you put in $100, you get $50 of return. Can you probably do better, even with low-risk strategies, than a 50% return over 9 to 15 years? Probably. So if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it with that 4%. I'm going to do, I'm going to max out what I can do on catch-up with that. And get as much of it as I can. Because that's, that's, Again, that's a guaranteed 100% mark, markup. Would I do it? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot more at play here than just how much your return is. Now, do you think you can do better than that? Well, okay, you're still only 15 years from retirement. If this truly is an IRA and you truly can have total control, then all you're doing is doing it inside the IRA. Unless you would invest this in some sort of way that's not possible in IRA, I, I would seriously consider this. Again, I'm not saying to do it, but I'm pretty pro doing it because why not defer or eliminate the taxes? Okay. Now, let's get the whole shifts in IRAs and what's going to happen. This is what I think is going to happen with IRAs. The government's eyeballing this money. They're eyeballing money in conventional IRAs a lot less than they are in Roths because the conventional IRAs eventually will be taxed. And they know that. They don't have to do anything to get to that money. What they're worried more about is what people are going to do going forward, and they're creating these new retirement vehicles, and I believe that they may at some point try to phase out IRAs and things like that. Now, could the government get its ass into some super financial sling and create some kind of a wealth tax on all these retirement accounts or something like that and renege on their deal? Sure. 
But if we get to there, you're going to have other things to be worried about anyway. So I would not, especially at 50 years old, 55 years old, not utilize these vehicles. I, I'm much more concerned about utilizing these vehicles when you're 30 or 25 right now. Because God knows what they're going to be doing. You're talking about, by the time you're retiring, four or five presidential administrations haven't come and gone. Or more, depending on how quick we turn them over. You've really got to think about all the turmoil that comes with all of that over all those years on something that they're signaling they don't like anymore. Now, I'm not saying if you're young not to use them. I'm saying think a little bit harder. So I wouldn't be afraid to use this in your situation. But if you actually knew what you wanted to do with this money and you were confident you could do it, then realize what you're trying to say you're going to do. You're going to beat a guaranteed doubling in 15 years. Or more, because you don't have to take it just because you retire, right? But, I mean, that's kind of your baseline. You're going you're gonna to try to beat 100% guaranteed return on that 4%. I don't like 401ks or government-sponsored retirements or whatever you want to call them, employee-managed retirement accounts, depending on, like, is this thing an IRA or not? I don't know. But the compelling reason to participate in them is when there's a significant match. 10%? Nah, it's better than nothing. If I was going to do it anyway, then fine, I get my 10%. You get a dollar-for-dollar dollar match, especially when you are you know, 10, 15 years away from retirement age. That's pretty freaking good. Because the truth is, by the time you're 50, you should be becoming more conservative with your investments anyway. So... I kind of feel like you should consider doing this. Moving on, I got an email here from John in Michigan. Actually, hold on. I'm going to skip ahead. It's actually a different John. This is John B. And John's also got a 401k question, which is why I want to discuss it before we move on to a totally different thing. So, Jack, I'm changing jobs, and I need to figure out what to do with my 401k. So far, it seems like the best option is to roll it into an IRA via a financial firm, Fidelity, uh, Betterment, E-Trade, etc. I wanted to know if you had any better options to simply rolling it into an IRA. If this is the best option, what companies do you recommend? I personally would be happier to work with a company that's not part of the big banking cartels, but I've not found a lot of options that seem more freedom-friendly. Okay, John, you're not going to. You're not going to. It doesn't matter who you hold your IRA with as far as the freedom movement or whatever because, you know, let's start off with the whole rolling it over. If you're leaving a job with a 401k, you only really have one good option, and that's to roll it into an IRA. Either that or take the interest and penalties and everything and pay the fee and get your money out. Now, where might that make sense? If you had a Roth IRA, you might actually jailbreak your money. Because here's the truth about a Roth 401k or a Roth IRA that they don't want you to know. Okay, If you withdraw money from a Roth IRA or Roth 401k that does not exceed the amount that you've personally contributed, there's no interest and no penalties. So let's say you've contributed $20,000 to a Roth retirement account. We'll just leave it there. And it's now worth forty. Well, the forty is what's tax sheltered. I'm sorry, the, tw the, the second twenty. The first twenty is the money you put in. The second twenty is interest, dividends, gains on trades, whatever. That's what's been tax sheltered. You've already paid the the, the taxes on the twenty that you're pulling out. 
you can extract that money. It's all on how you fill out the form, and you'll own nothing. So if you had a Roth 401k, what you could do is you could go ahead and roll it. I would actually do the, do the extraction, right? And you might want to get a CPA to help you with making sure you do the form right. Take a look at it, okay? Get your, get your money out and then leave behind all the gains or a little bit more than just the gains. Leave 5% of your contributions behind just to cover your ass, right? So they didn't say you, you, you didn't carry a one or some shit. And then you roll that into an IRA. Right? That's, that's one bugaboo in there that you need. And that's a very important thing to know. There's so many people out there that have taken advantage of Roths, and they might need some money out of that account, and they're afraid of the interest and penalties. And again, you need to fill the paperwork out right when you do it. But if it's your contributed money, you've already paid tax on it. There's no penalty for its withdrawal. How many of you did not know that? That was worth today's whole episode right there. Okay. Another reason I prefer Roths. And you're never paying tax on that money unless they renege on it, which, you know, we can only control so many things. You might get hit by a truck tomorrow, too. So one way or another, you, the last thing you want to do is leave a job and leave money languishing in a 401k where you have 8 or 10 or 12 things to pick from. So you want it into an IRA. There are a lot of small regional banks, credit unions and stuff like that that offer IRAs. The problem is most of them are very difficult to actually use the investment vehicle as it's intended with. In other words, you can either hold cash or a CD. And if you want to buy stocks or whatever, it's really a pain in the ass. Or you can't do it. They're set up to basically keep money in their little bank, right? Uh, but give you the, the, the IRA vehicle to do it in. And that's what you understand. 401ks, IRA steps, all that's their vehicles. The actual investment isn't the vehicle. So when you use E-Trade and you have E-Trade and you have E-Trade as your little dome around your investments, the only real money E-Trade's making is when you make and execute trades, they charge you for that. They would do that if you had a 401k or you didn't have a 401k. So you're not helping the banking cartel because E-Trade's holding your IRA any more than you're helping the banking cartel every time you do business in dollars. It's just a house for your investments. From that point, the people you're actually helping in any moderate way, given the scale we work at compared to the scale of the whole, is whoever you've invested in. So if you think Monsanto's evil, but inside your E-Trade IRA, or let's call it the, the Super Liberty Forum all-powerful anarcho-libertarian sphere uh, financial management portfolio account, and you have an IRA in there, and you invest in the same mutual fund, well, you're still funding Monsanto activities. So it's all about where you're holding your money. So it's the investments, not the sphere around them, that you need to be concerned with. Personally, I like E-Trade. Uh, Scott Trade, Ameritrade, all these companies, some of them have lower transaction fees than E-Trade. But if you don't do high-volume trading, and most of us don't, um, it's a really simple system to learn. It's really easy to manage. It's easy to put money into your E-Trade account from your bank account and back over. I'm sure that's, that's the same with all the other ones. But I've been using E-Trade for over a decade now. And I've never had a problem. I've never had a problem whatsoever. So... I, I, I have a hard, hard time faulting them. And I, I definitely will tell you this. You want something that's going to put you in control of your money. 
So whether it's Scott Trade or E-Trade or, or what have you, you want something with an online interface. You can log in, see how much money you have, and just go, you know what? Don't want to be in this shit right now. Sell everything to cash, and you can just do that. Or, you know what, silver's really low, I want to take 10% of my money, I want to go into a silver ETF, I want to hold it, and I want to, want to, I think it gains, and I want to make a trade like that. I want to do that kind of a, a rapid trade. You, you, you want that ability. And if you're thinking, but all I really want, Jack, is to keep the mutual funds that my company gave me anyway. I like them. Fine, roll it into an IRA and just leave, leave it where it is. A lot of times when you roll it into an IRA, it will come in as cash or in a money market, though. So it will sell and execute the trades, in other words, to free up the money to roll it over. But then all you do is just log in and buy back all that stuff. If you actually want it, maybe you just think you do. You might feel really good while I sit in cash right now in this unstable market and say, well, I take some time and figure some shit out before I worry about where it goes. So definitely when you leave a job, get your 401ks into IRAs. Know you can jailbreak money inside of Roths. And be strategic about what you do for yourself, not for some sort of etherical spiritual reason or something like, I don't want to do business with the big banks. Every single day that you spend Federal Reserve notes, you do business with the big banks. So if it's denominated in dollars, you're doing business with them anyway. So until you get out of dollars, and even gold and silver held in those types of accounts is denominated in dollars, You, you, you can't really worry about it. You've got to make the best decision logistically for your own needs and yourself. Now let's uh, hear from other John, John in Michigan, right? John in Michigan says, An update on the story of the pastor charged after handing out jury nullification pamphlets in Michigan. Felony charge was dropped, uh, but the jury tampering remains a misdemeanor. He did get his bond back in full, and there's a link to a Fox 17 online story about this. I'll give you a little bit of background, and then I'm going to go ahead and play the piece for you. I'm going to come back and talk more about jury nullification in this particular case and why this is so important. If you're really concerned about liberty and freedom, this is more important than where you bank with. Way more important than where you bank with. So the, the, the initial story that doesn't really get covered in this piece, which is why I'll, I'll fill the blanks in for you, is this guy is a jury nullification activist. And for those who don't know, jury nullification is the concept that a juror has a right to vote their conscience. So if the charge against you is possession of marijuana greater than an ounce, so they say you had an intent to deal, right? And regardless of my feelings about marijuana, let's just say I just feel like just because you have an ounce of grass doesn't mean you were dealing. So, the, but, the, but the state makes the case it was intent to distribute. And I as a juror say, I disagree with that. And the court's order to you will basically be, you judge guilt or innocence based on the law. And I say, no, not guilty. Not guilty wins the day. Now, all different things have different, you know, what will a judge do with a split decision? Does it have to be unanimous? You know, all different things. But let's say that I make that case to my fellow jurors. Hey, guys, after looking at this and seeing what they're charging this guy with and the, and the, and the punishment he's facing... And I don't know about you guys, but I've smoked pot in my life, too, and I've seen people with more than an ounce on them, and they weren't dealing. They certainly weren't dealing away. They're like, I don't feel good about this. I think we should vote not guilty. And somebody says, oh, we have to vote guilty. They proved he had it. And I go, no, we don't. No, we don't. We have a right to determine for ourselves, based on our conscience, that this man should be found not guilty. Now, that's, that's away from even just saying, I just think pot should be legal, so I'm going to say not guilty. 
right? That's actually examining it, doing what a jury's supposed to do, and saying, did the case actually prove their state? Just because a law says, and I don't know if it's an ounce, right? I'm, I'm not a, a lawyer dealing with narcotic cases, right? I'm just saying, that's an example of something, or maybe it's five ounces, whatever. It's enough that the, the law says, when you have more than this, you intend to distribute. We can look at that and go, no, 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 no. And maybe some people do, and maybe, you know, maybe some guy with half that amount's distributing, And maybe a guy with that much just really likes to smoke pot and was having a party. Right? So, not guilty on the charge. We might even say, not guilty on intended to distribute, but guilty on the charge of simple possession if we're that type of a jury. You see, it's the jury makes this decision, not me and you, unless we're part of the jury. And the concept of jury nullification is, I, in my conscience, don't believe this man should face a penalty for what he did. I don't care what the law says. So this guy is an activist for that, and he's out handing out pamphlets that basically tell jurors, as a juror, or anybody, in fact, anybody that walks by the street just hands them stuff, hey, here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go, did you know this, did you know this, did you know this? So he's doing that, and his prosecutor goes apeshit and tries to throw the book at him and charge him with felony, uh, uh, I think it was fair, felony juror, juror tampening or something like that, which could, you know, and they... Huge bond, and he was facing years in prison, and now they're down to just like a misdemeanor charge, which could still be jail time. Make no mistake about it. If he doesn't plead guilty, he still says he's not pleading guilty, right? I'm sure they're they're trying to do this to make a deal with him. Okay, look, we'll give you a slap on the wrist and a fine, and uh, you know we'll do a suspended sentence or whatever. And he's no, this is free speech. But what they're the case they're making is that he knowingly went to that location, knowing that jurors or potential jurors would be coming to the courtroom for a specific case that he thought was wrong that they were prosecuting in the first place and was handing out things to known jurors in an attempt to manipulate a jury in selection or after selection. That's the intent. Um, and now they've come to a lesser charge inferring the same thing. Because otherwise, he's just out under free speech. So the technicality's there. With that, let me play you the updated piece from the news, uh, from Fox News, and uh, I'll come back with more on this subject as a whole. Told me the bond. I, I, again, I was speechless. $150,000 bond for handing out a piece of paper on a public sidewalk. A bond and charges, his attorney argues, are outrageous. The Macosta man facing prison time for passing out jury rights flyers on the sidewalk in front of the courthouse, all along telling us he was left speechless. Yeah, Keith Wood was back in court again this morning determining whether this controversial case will eventually move to trial. Fox 17, Dana Chickless broke the story back in November. She is outside the Macosta County Courthouse with the latest. The five-year felony in this case was just dropped. It's still going forward, though, with the jury tampering charge. And I just spoke with Keith Wood. As you can imagine, he and his family are extremely relieved by that felony being dropped. But he still tells me he feels he did nothing wrong. The case still getting a lot of attention. The courtroom was packed this morning. Also just spoke with a couple who drove all the way from Sheboygan just to be here for this hearing. The defense telling me this is still very much a civil rights issue, believing it's a violation of free speech. This is a free speech case, absolutely, because in the, you heard the judge at the end say, I'm taking that under advisement, I'm not ruling, because she wants to hear facts and things like that. So absolutely we'll be pursuing the free speech arguments and everything you heard. There's no illegal activity here. Nothing illegal, Keith Wood and his attorney argue in this pamphlet. Is this what the people of Macosta County need to be protected from? 
is this why our client needs to be ripped away from his family and put in prison, which is what the prosecutor is asking for. That is the the equities of this case are not in issue. The question is, was the law violated? Is there a First Amendment protection to it? A juror's right to vote their conscience, jury nullification, sparking this controversy nationwide over Wood's felony charge. Oh, man, we've heard from everybody from the ACLU, like I said, the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, to you name it. It's across the board. Everybody sees this and that this should not be happening. Though no Michigan statute criminalizes jury nullification, the prosecution says this pamphlet polluted a jury pool intentionally. With regard to the obstruction of justice, we do believe that it is a broader activity that's being involved here where you do pollute the entire jury panel. And certainly, if we were to allow Mr. Wood's conduct here, we could have every trial stopped. Judge Kimberly Boer sitting in for Judge Peter Jaklovic after he allegedly ordered Wood's arrest back in November. Dropping the felony, she says the misdemeanor stands, defining a juror as anybody summoned. A juror can be defined as someone who is in the jury Grateful for the rarity to be refunded his $15,000 bond deposit in full, Wood says he has no intention of pleading guilty to jury tampering. Wood will be in court next for a pre-trial date that's still to be set. Stay with Fox 17. We'll stay on top of this case for you and continue to bring you any developments. For now, we're in Macosta County. Dana Chiklis, Fox 17 News. Now, There's a couple very interesting things going on here. One, you can see the state is afraid of this. And when I say the state, I don't just mean the the, the particular group of representatives of the state in this individual case. As a whole, they want this to go away. And this is why I believe they dropped the felony charge. One, I think that the judge looked at and said, you're not going to get that. But two, I don't want national coverage of this. And I guarantee you there's pressure on this individual region from the, from the, the, the super state, right, uh, and the extensions thereof. Make this go away. We don't want a national discussion about this issue. What the prosecutor said in, in the prior coverage of this was that we could have people out committing acts of terrorism and getting away with it because the jury ends up being made of people that think terrorism's okay and will have anarchy. Well, this proves a couple things. One, he's an idiot. Two, he doesn't know what anarchy is. And three, the state doesn't trust you. The state doesn't trust you to judge good and bad for yourself, right and wrong for yourself. The state doesn't trust you in your service as a juror to be the ultimate check on the system, even though it was a system designed to work that way. Why do you think we have trials by jury in the first place? Do you think the real reason we have trials by jury is just to determine whether or not the person actually did what was claimed? I mean, in many instances, we can say all we want about you know innocent till proven guilty, but the facts are well known and maybe even not contested. This is a perfect... See, this is what's interesting. This case is a textbook case for jury nullification. Because here's here's why they didn't want the felony trial. I'll tell you right now. So, you're not supposed to, if you're the state, you don't tell the jury about all this stuff. In fact, you actually give them instructions to the counter. 
You instruct them that they are there to judge the law, not their personal perceptions of it. You lie to them, okay? You can't do it here. Don't you get that? You can't do it because the defense is going to make a claim that, hey, there's your, by the way, your key piece of evidence is a pamphlet you're going to have to hand to the jury about jury nullification. Well, shit, we don't want that. So we'd much rather move this into a misdemeanor trial and try to avoid that whole thing. Let's, let's, let's take the maximum penalty that we can possibly get for this misdemeanor. Let's go threaten this man, okay? And let's say, listen, let's avoid a jury trial. Surely there's some way we can do that. We can even do this. You want your day in court. How about we do it with a judge? If you go at this with a judge trial, what we'll do is we'll seek only this much penalty. You still get to prove your innocence. No way. No way. No, 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 no. This has to have a jury. The jury is the subject here. But this is the truth. The state has always been afraid of this issue because it is the quickest way to affect change, period. There's no faster way to affect change in the legal system than an informed population of people that refuse to convict people for crimes that ought not be crimes. A perfect example is prohibition. They passed a freaking constitutional amendment to make alcohol illegal. They got it done, and it was still such to the case that the majority of people arrested for the possession of alcohol or other similar things with alcohol were set free because they always asked for a jury trial. They asked for a jury of their peers. In those days, you actually got a jury of your peers, and people went in and went, you know, I was at that speakeasy too. They just didn't catch me. Not guilty. And it so weakened it that the nation... For, for that and other reasons, repealed an amendment to the Constitution. Okay, how many amendments to the Constitution have been repealed? Do, 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 do. Jeopardy music, anyone? How many have been repealed? Straight up repealed. One. If jury nullification can contribute to the, re the repealing of a constitutional amendment. The repealing of a constitutional amendment. Now, I guess it wasn't technically repealed. It was circumvented by the by another amendment, right? That's how you change the constitution. But, in essence, we all know what it was repealed. It was like, this shit didn't work. We got to get rid of this, okay? So imagine if we actually informed the, the whole population about this. Now, here's what jury nullification doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the jury can vote guilty when the state failed to make its case. So it really can't be used the other way, other than jurors can vote any way they want, and they can be stupid if they want to. But you can't have a, a, a juror telling other jurors, we got to convict this guy because he's a douchebag, even though they didn't prove their case. Juries can't. If, if that discussion happens, then you're going to have a mistrial, or that juror's going to have to be recused or replaced or something. right? But this discussion of, do we feel morally okay with convicting this under the totality of evidence and reality, that discussion is perfectly acceptable. 
Now, if you're the state and you keep passing more and more and more laws and you want your citizens to quake in fear in front of you and do whatever you say and you literally, the goal of government at this point has come become to regulate all aspects of humanity. They want a license or a law or a code to, to control everything you do. Literally everything you do. And, and if you talk to government officials long enough, you'll realize that I'm not making that up. I'm not sensationalizing that. They really do want control of everything because they feel you're not capable. What would be the number one way to combat that? Well, we have a court system. A person has to go through that court system. If the person chooses to, they can be tried as guilty or innocent in front of a jury of their peers. And for the jury of their peers to know, you don't have to say guilty if you don't want to. Now, the, the whole, well, terrorists will be able to just blow shit up then. That infers that you're so stupid that you'll vote no just on spite. In other words, you're not trusted. You're not trusted with the system that's designed to serve you, that you're supposed to be a participant in. They don't want you to know that you can vote not guilty to vote your conscience, but they really, really want you to show up and vote in November for one of the two ass clowns that you get to pick from to run your state or your nation or your county. Really important that you vote that day. You know why? Because they know it doesn't mean jack diddly shit. They know that elections are bought and sold and won and in, 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 in monetary denominations. But they know that on a jury of 12, one person can make a difference. Well, I'm here to tell you one person not only can, but should make a difference. When I was a young person, and I'm sure I would never get onto a jury now because I'm a public person, but when I was a young person, my goal was always, if I was to be selected for a jury, to avoid being on a jury. I didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, the hassle, the inconvenience, how long it could take, the fact that I didn't trust government anyway, even back then, but I really didn't want to be on a jury. Today, I would love to be on a jury, and specifically in cases involving victimless crimes where I could just say, you know what? No. No. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. Let's say I was selected for a jury. I ended up on a jury. The charge was sexual molestation of a child. If the state proves its case, then I'm voting guilty because that's a crime with a victim. And while I don't really like the way the state-run prison system works, if anybody needs to be in there, it's a child molester. Good place for you to go. Shouldn't have molested a child. Sorry about your luck. However, if it's you know rape of a child or something like that, and what we're talking about is a 22-year-old kid that was at a party and ends up hooking up with a 14-year-old girl that looks like she was 19 and said she was 19, and the state still wants to make that case, and the girl's like, yeah, I did it, and the state tells it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that really happened, by the way? Okay. Not guilty. Not guilty. I'm not saying it was a good thing. I'm not saying it should happen lots of times again. But I'm not willing to destroy somebody's life over that if that's what really happened. I'm really not. And we've been so misled that, that what I'm saying sounds like some kind of radical conspiracy nutjobism to most of America today. If you try to explain this to them, they'll say, no, this can't be. Have you ever been presented with any evidence to the contrary other than opinion? See, opinion's not evidence. Show me a law 
that requires a juror to vote against their conscience. Show me a law that denies a juror a right to make a determination of innocence based on their individual feelings about the case. Because, folks, it happens in most cases anyway. A lot of times, juries vote guilty because they felt the person was guilty. And in many times, they vote innocent because even though there's evidence that would indicate the person might be guilty, in their heart, they looked at the totality and felt the person was innocent. If you eliminate jury nullification, then you destroy the value of a jury in the first place. But I, I, I hope they take this guy to trial, and I hope there's a jury. Because I want the jury to be presented with the pamphlet that says that they have a right to nullify the court's decision. I want that discussion to take place. And now that we're looking at a, a, a relatively uh, small uh, conviction, that this guy probably wouldn't do any serious jail time or anything for, still could do some, uh, it, it seems like a bad move by the state. Like, if he was willing to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with you when you were threatening him with 10 years or more in, in prison, you don't think he's willing to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with you over 90 days in jail or so? Seriously. I mean, a misdemeanor conviction can suck, but it doesn't destroy your life the way a, a, a felony does. So they've actually weakened their hand, but I think they felt they had to. They're, they're, this was getting too much discussion. And when they're afraid about us discussing something, What do you think we should do? What do you think we should do when the government's afraid of us having a discussion? Why, I think we should discuss the shit out of it. So I'd like you to do this for me. I'd like you to talk to maybe two or three or four people in the next couple weeks about this. Just, hey, have you ever heard of this thing? What do you know about it? What do you think about it? How do you feel about it? Is there anything that's illegal that if you were on a jury and you knew about this and it was legitimate, you'd say not guilty even if the person was guilty because you don't think that should be a crime? Now, this is what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't knowingly have this discussion with a person who's already on a jury or is currently under the process of juror selection because they can and will make a case against you because that's what they've done with this man. Had he been two blocks away from where he was, just handing this out to everybody, which seems like what he was doing at the location he was at, they would have had a very hard time making a case. The key is there were activities around juror selection and the case itself at a time when you would know that people were showing up and he's out in front of the courthouse. Do I still think the case is weak for the state? Absolutely. Do I think it should be totally legal to stand out there knowing some of these people might be in a jury? Absolutely. Is it? We don't know yet. That's up to... Jury tampering is a serious charge. Obstruction of justice is a serious charge. But I would have to be out there differentiating, in my view anyway, if I'm on the jury that has to convict this guy for talking about jury nullification, you'd have to prove to me that when he handed something to somebody, he positively knew that person was on the jury. The fact that he might have chosen a public place to do this, where jurors might be, is not sufficient proof to me, but it may be to the average idiot who ends up on a jury. So it's dangerous. So I would not interfere with an active jury. I would talk to people now so that if they become on an active jury, you've already planted the seed of truth. And let me tell you something. The people in power, they're afraid of a lot of things. They really are. 
They quake in fear every day because they realize they're like one-tenth of one percent. And if the rest of us ever figured that out, we could crush them like ants. They, they fear us. And they fear we're too stupid to run our own lives. So we could just run amok and destroy everything. They really believe this. But they also fear a couple things, even more than just the general weight of the total. They fear us not being divided. The people in charge fear a unified America. That's why every person, no matter how much they talk about unity and the greatness of America, always divides us. From Obama to Trump and back, they always divide us on classes and income levels and everything because they don't want cooperation. But what they fear even more than cooperation is the truth. The truth scares them. The truth is very difficult to argue with once its light is shining. Now, you can bury it. You can call it conspiracy theory. You can call it the realm of nuttiness. You can belittle it. You can poo-poo it. You can do all kinds of things to suppress it. But once it actually is exposed and it shines for what it is, it's almost impossible to pull the covers back over it. And this is a truth. This jury nullification concept is an absolute, positive, fundamental truth in the Constitutional Republic that is the United States of America. It is a truth, and that's why they're so afraid of it. So you talk about it. Okay, I'm sorry, I lost the email that directed me to this article. I don't know why it's not in the folder that it should be, but I'm just going to go on with it. I only got this from one person, so if you're hearing this, sir, I'm pretty sure it was a mail anyway, that... Uh, Know that your email was received and I'm covering. I'm not not naming you out of omission. I just, I don't know what happened. I hit delete when I didn't mean to or something. But the story is the Bank of England to launch its own cryptocurrency. Let me read the article to you. The Bank of England has announced a plan to launch its own Bitcoin-like cryptocurrency. The cryptocurrency called RS Coin will also function on a blockchain, the distributed ledger system on which Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are built. Earlier, in January 2016, China's National Bank also announced plans to launch a virtual currency. Radical shift from traditional crypto. RS Coin was originally developed by research at the University College of London, UCL, which provides greater centralized control compared to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. The original paper published by the UCL researchers behind RS Coin explained, quote, RS Coin's radical shift from traditional cryptocurrencies is to centralize the monetary supply. Every unit of the particular currency is created by a particular central bank, making cryptocurrencies based on RS Coin significantly more palatable to governments. <laughs> Despite the centralization, RS Coin still provides a benefit overall of existing non-cryptocurrencies of transparent le transaction ledger, a distributed system for maintaining it, and a globally visible monetary supply. This makes monetary policy transparent, allowing direct access to payments and value transfers, supports pseudonymity, and the benefits of innovative uses of blockchains and digital money. Here's the Jack Spearco no-bullshit version of that. It's just as good as Bitcoin, but um, we're going to completely control how much is created, when it's created, how it's created, and you'll have visibility into it, but you'll never be able to understand it because we'll make sure you can't. Okay? In this case, the Bank of England would be the singular controller of the blockchain. <laughs> so, okay, great. And the encryption key that allows the subtraction or addition of the cryptocurrency from the blockchain. Okay, the way Bitcoin works is the rules are stated in the beginning and cannot be changed. 
This is how much effort it takes to produce a Bitcoin. This is how many Bitcoins there'll be. Once a Bitcoin is produced, it can be held. It can be taken off the blockchain into a physical wallet. But in essence, it's, it exists forever. It's never removed. It's never destroyed. And it certainly no more will ever be created. You can't inflate it at will. It's impossible. can't be done. It's a deflationary system designed to preserve the wealth of the individual rather than centralize the wealth of the bank. You know what says it's centralized? Okay? So that's, this is actually the opposite of Bitcoin. The, the fact that it's digital does not make it Bitcoin. The fact that it can work on a blockchain does not make it like Bitcoin. It's actually the opposite of Bitcoin. It's just using the same technology. This is what people understand. The blockchain is not Bitcoin. The blockchain is a system that allows Bitcoin to operate and can allow many other systems to operate. That's important. Hold on. Uh, Matthew Common is the CEO of Cambridge Blockchain, Cambridge Blockchain LLC, explained, RS Coin is perhaps best described as a hybrid approach between the distributed model of Bitcoin and a conventional centralized fiat currency. In the hybrid model, a central bank delegates the authority of validating transactions to a number of other institutions that are called minettes. There are... Uh, they are known and can be held legally accountable for their actions. This test should help provide validation as to whether such an approach is sustainable and scalable. Significance of RS Coin. Matthew Common spoke favorably uh, and said RS Coin will bear great significance. Quote, around the world, policymakers are reexamining how digital currency controlled by a central bank might provide faster, low-cost payments with more traceability. In today's environment of low and negative interest rates, digital currencies may also provide new monetary policy tools that were previously unavailable. Bass Wisslink of Next Foundation believe RSS coin could would be just another cryptocurrency, but without the efficient mechanism of public blockchains. Quote, it's not surprising that banks are trying this, but in the end they will most probably need to accept the fact that their approach represents a dead end. A permissioned blockchain means constant work is needed to maintain security, which is exactly what is being outsourced and incentivized by permissionless blockchains. They're effectively throwing out the efficiency mechanism. David Mondros said, while it's entirely possible for the Bank of England to be able to sell it, thanks to marketing gurus, but... Quote, fortunately, the Bitcoin community screams about scams loud and often, and I expect this time will be no exception. In other words, the Bitcoin community will say RS coin is a scam. Everything that can be manipulated will be. There are also hesitations as to the increased level of corruption that many believe would be connected to a private system. Quote, look at basic human psychology and history. Can you name any system where corruption is built in, possibly, that did not succumb to it? Blockchain technology is a way to avoid having to allocate unneeded trust, and once again, they are removing just that. Bass Whistling agreed, further explaining, I am convinced banks can use blockchain technology, but tearing out the essentials to do it is certainly not the way. It either shows a lack of understanding of the principles or an unwillingness to use the tools as they are meant to be used. David also noted, everything that can be manipulated will be manipulated. The point of a distributed value network is to distri is distribute that risk in order to lessen it, which is missing in this case. So the, the way to explain this is Bitcoin is run by computers all over the world in a distributed model. 
The people that are running computers to actually enable Bitcoin transactions don't just mine Bitcoins with computers. They actually verify transactions. And they don't really give a shit who's transacting who with what. They just care that it's valid so they get their little tiny fee for the validation of a transaction. And it's so distributed and it's so non-centralized that you don't need a trust mechanism because it is its own trust mechanism. What the bank's saying is, hey, 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 we know this shit's worked for over five years now. We know it's actually making us look stupid. But you need us to verify what's already been verified. And so they're going to get in the game and try to weaken what made it a success in the first place. But, hey, we're the Bank of England. People will care. Well, what will happen is, as, as, as banks of England and central banks and nations themselves, like Ecuador still keeps talking about doing it, come out with these virtual currencies, all it does is strengthen Bitcoin. Because it leads people to go, wait a minute, if they're doing it too, then it must work. These are the people that said it wouldn't work. Now I'm supposed to trust them and they're changing it? When it did work over here? And then this is the bigger thing. So the governments and central banks, which are really one and the same, are getting together and looking at this and going a couple of things. One, they're greedy bastards. They're greedy, greedy, greedy bastards. And they know that shit happens all the time where people exchange money and they don't get theirs. See, they don't understand that it's your money that they're supposed to serve you with, even if you believe in the system. They actually look at it as their money. It's their money. All right, they want it. I'm talking about your elected officials and all the bureaucrats, right? So they know that you and Tom might have a bet about a football game, and Tom might win 500 bucks from you, and you're just going to give him 500 bucks, and no one's ever going to tax that. They want to tax everything, so they love the. They've always loved the idea of this type of a currency system. It's all 100% electronic and completely visible to them. Because then they can see every dollar, space credit, whatever you want to call it, RS coin that moves anywhere or changes into any other form. And therefore they can tax it all and there's no escape. So that's why they want it. Problem is, they couldn't ever figure out how to do it, specifically in a way where people would go, yeah, we think that's a good idea. And then the private world came up with Bitcoin, which was long said, it's a Trojan horse, government will co-opt it. And those of us that understood Bitcoin enough to understand it said they may try to emulate it, but they can't co-opt it because it's so distributed. You can't get your arms around it. You can't shut it down. Trust me, if they could have shut it down, they would have shut it down. So now they want to emulate it, but in their own form. This reminds me of when the United States government decided email wasn't safe and secure enough the way that it was from private email uh, providers. So the, the United States government decided it was going to create its own email service and they would charge you to use it. And nobody did. Well, like five people did, but not enough to sustain it because everybody and their mother was out churning out different email accounts with different types of security or different add-ons or, or what have you, and the private market just murdered them. Well, this is the private market on steroids. That's what blockchain is. And just as government is getting into the concept of, hey, we should, we should do this too with money, they don't understand the blockchain is already going to not replacing just government's role and the central bank's role in the creation of money and the control of money and in the handling of transactions. Because, again, I want to explain this to you 
This is something so hard for many of you, even in this audience, to accept. Money is only a system of accounting. I don't care if you're using gold and silver, Federal Reserve notes, Star Trek credits. In the end, all money is is a system of accounting. I have a value. You have a value. We want to exchange value. My value is I produce content for you to listen to. Your value is that you make shark fishing hooks, I guess, okay? I don't need any shark fishing hooks right now. So we use money so that you can take the value you receive for selling your shark fishing hooks and send it to me to become a member of my program. And all that really is the money is just a system of accounting. The actual, the actual real money, the actual value is your ability to do something to generate enough positivity to transfer some of it to me and my ability to transfer enough positivity back to you so that you feel good about your transfer to me. Value for value. And money's just a unit that we use to keep tabs on that back and forth accounting. It's a method of accounting. It's not value in of itself. Take the economy away. Take what we do away. Take what we add to things away. And just let money sit in a pile, and it's not worth the BTUs it would create if you set it on fire. Okay? And it's it's one of the greatest scams that's been committed over human beings that you need a government to see to that accounting. That you and I can't see to it on our own. Bitcoin un, 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 just pulled the veil off that and said, look at that. Look at that. They've been lying to you for centuries, and you were dumb enough to believe it. And people were afraid of it. Now people started using it and went, wait a minute. This works the same way, but better. They don't know everything we're doing. The government says, we'll use it to get... So the government's catching up from five years and then weakening the product after public knowledge already understands why it works and is growing every day. But <laughs> they're so stupid, they really think it's about money. Blockchain technology is about replacing them completely. So that you don't need them, like we talked about in the history segment, to determine who said what and how about a marriage. That we could actually have that completely auditable. That human beings don't need government to put a stamp that says they're certified or licensed or anything anymore. Because people could literally have a score based on what they provide and who they do it with and how satisfied their customers are. That every individual could, could just literally say, well, what's your number on the blockchain before I do business with you? And I go, gee, verified by 400 plus sources that you're trustworthy. I think I can trust you to do business with you, but I still want a contract. Well, we don't need a lawyer for that. What do we want? And just let's put that on the blockchain. And then that'll actually build both of our trust when we fulfill our obligations. And if we're not certain, we can go to an arbitrator on the blockchain who can examine our contract on the blockchain that can tell us how to solve our problem. And we won't need government for that. We'll have virtual nations. That's where this is going. And they're just getting caught up, poorly might I add, to monetary creation. They don't understand. We're going to replace their court systems so that we don't need jury nullification. Now, we still will for a long time because even when we create a parallel system, they'll still suck you into theirs. But what if this happened? What if you were being charged with something the state said you did and 
Basically, it meant that you were dishonest, but every member of that jury was also a member of the virtual nation that we'll call for this moment, Bit Nation. We'll talk about them in a second. And was able to pull up your trusted, trusted score. How trusted are you in dealing with people? In what ways? And your trust score was through the roof. They could then use that as part of their decision-making process. And if a court ordered them not to, they probably wouldn't care. Now, we're talking 20 years down the line at this point that we're that sophisticated with this. But we're literally using blockchain technology to rewrite the rules of how humanity engages with each other, trades value with each other, and resolves conflicts. And we will eventually create a system that also helps us protect each other, educate each other, inform each other, provide trust ratings, verify that people actually can do what they say they can do, We're, we're replacing almost every function of government, especially in non-material function. So virtual nations, as of right now, can't build roads. But they can build schools, because schools are about education, not buildings. So with that, I want to kind of turn over to um, a thing called BitNation and, and talk a little bit about that for a minute. So BitNation popped up right about the time I, I first, and I'm not saying I had anything to do with it because I don't think I did. I think that, so let me talk about another phenomenon right now that I think creates conflict in human beings. I believe that when ideas are actually at a point where, where humanity is ready for them, they manifest themselves in multiple minds, in multiple communities, in multiple people at the same time, where it can actually look like one person has copied the other, even though they both independently come to the same way to solve a problem. And I think we're seeing that with virtual nations and things that are like virtual nations right now. So I think these people behind, uh, it's called bitnation.co, B-I-T-N-A-T-I-O-N dot C-O. Um, they came to this through interactions with other people. I came to it through a thought experiment, my head walking around feeding my ducks. And Xavier Hawk, with um, with his um, his product, which was called um, Permacredits, which was a form of Bitcoin. I don't know what's actually happened with that. Like I said, a lot of this stuff, people come up with the idea, and it's so much work it gets derailed. Um, was was came up with that, and then he heard my show about. Virtual nations, he's like, holy crap, that's what we're trying to do, right? So even though we were close enough to know each other, we were forming these ideas. So I think that, and if you look through history, a lot of inventions and things like that, that people thought they were the first one to do it, sometimes they were dead ripping somebody off, but there were a lot of times that two technologies were developed almost identically at the same time in different places. And to me, when you see that occurring, it's a signal that humanity is on the edge of logically moving to that point. So when we start to see these different methods of creating a virtual nation pop up and different people coming to the same conclusions at the same time, I think that's a signal that we're there, that psychologically, emotionally, and hopefully from a standpoint of maturity, at least some of us are there. So BitNation pops up, and they have this like one giant page you can scroll through and there's really nothing you can do except buy some BitNation credits or something like that and they're having this launch and whatever and this 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 gal that's part of it 
It's kind of like the head worker bee is going around and doing interviews on Russia Today and all times. You know, Max, uh, what's his name? Max Geiger. I don't, that's not the right name for him. Uh, Geiger. It's Kaiser. Max Kaiser. The Kaiser Report, right? She was on that show. And they get all this, like, media exposure, but they haven't actually done anything yet. They haven't even put together a, a, a site that really goes anywhere But it has like this like graphic that has all these different things that they're going to do. Well, now they're actually doing things. They actually have a public notary that's actually acting as a notary. Now, I don't know who cares yet. They actually have, you can become a citizen, which is basically registering for a website. So how's that going to go? But under services, they are listing that they are going to provide, at least initially, um, world citizenship ID, uh, ambassador support, emergency refugee emergency response an education network a business opportunity network a debit card and they are ambitious enough to say they're going to have a space agency long-term planning they have things like legal and id system dispute regulation uh, resolution marriage and divorce corporate incorporation land titles birth and death certificates child care contract now i want to stop there on a second on the land titles so We always think about these virtual nations and think, well, the limitation is it's all the immaterial things. Well, a title on land is just a title. Now, would it be recognized by other governments? I don't know. But it is something that eventually could be as you evolve this. Healthcare, they're talking about providing insurance, unemployment insurance, pensions, basic income. How's that going to work? I don't know. It's probably more likely to work in something like this than anything else, including education, community management. Like, they're literally looking to create a framework for people to provide self-governance on a voluntary basis for those that want to engage with each other so that they know what the rules are. So it's, it's, it's literally this invisible framework that people can opt in or out of based on who they voluntarily want to associate with. It's madness. It's crazy talk. It says that people are actually responsible enough to see to their own needs, to agree with each other about those things, and to resolve their own differences on their own. And, and this is where, and now, this site doesn't really work for me yet. Okay? I don't get what to do in a lot of ways yet. I don't really understand what I can do with it yet. But that's how I felt about Bitcoin when it came out in the first week, and I wish I would have jumped on it. I'm not saying to jump on this. I don't know that you can, okay? But I sure wish I would have thrown like $10,000 in Bitcoin when it was trading for like, you know, 20 cents a, a, a Bitcoin. I mean, that would have been a great thing. So don't think just because something's not moving fast enough for you that it's not going to get where it's headed. And I think this idea, again, this is why I started this, this segment out with this. This idea is so much an idea whose time has come. Someone's going to make it work. Someone's going to create a virtual nation that does four or five things really, really well. Just four or five things really, really well. They're going to create an online university that only does business in Bitcoin or a derivative of Bitcoin. Something like that. And people are going to start using it and the credential is going to get recognized. Because if the guy says, I can program in COBOL or whatever the hell it is, right? After he completes the course and he's certified by the, the blockchain that he can, and you hire him, he'll do what the hell. And an employer is going to go, don't give a shit. But he doesn't have a credit degree from an Ivy. 
Don't give a shit. Do not care. Now, the mainland universities are trying to catch up to this idea, but, again, decentralization for the win. So when governments are just beginning to understand that their threat to the monopoly on money creation and money management is threatened by this technology, it's already evolving to take away the need for them to police our marriages, to police our corporate agreements with each other, to educate our children, to educate adults, to ensure trust between parties. It's evolving because government is a dinosaur. And, you know, I'm not some delusional person. I realize that many, 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 many thousands and millions of years after the dinosaurs disappeared, we still have crocodiles and alligators and Komodo dragons. And we also have many of our species of birds, which we believe have directly evolved from predecessors of the dinosaurs, and there's a remnant But I'll take a remnant of government over the current government any day. And I think that's where we're headed. Again, this is a decade, multi-decade journey. But it is technology that is evolving past our need for oppressing, for, for, for electing our own oppressors. That's the best system we've come up with, right? That's how you have to look at this. In, in, in thousands and thousands of years of human history, of civilized history, 12,000 years of rudimentarily civilized history, We've gone from the strongest oppressing the weak by the illusion of birthright or just physical strength or some sort of family lineage or some sort of military complex or some sort of religious claim. And I'm not just talking about you know the king's claim that God wants him to be king. I'm talking about actually religious government as well. That, that in all of that, the best we could do is so far was get to a point where we elect the people that control us. But today we are evolving technology that will actually empower us to not need government to resolve our conflicts, or at least the majority of them. What if we could just take away 70% of the conflicts that are currently resolved by government take it out of their hands and back put it in our own. 70% of the disputes, 70% of the accusations, 70% of, the, of the, the requirements of law, 70%, and leave 30% behind. Would you sign up to get on that train? I sure as hell would. Let's uh, take another question. This one comes from uh, a girl named Tammy in Georgia. I love gun questions from women. They're not afraid to just ask questions and, and not pretend that they... They don't know what they don't know. Dear Jack, I finally acquired some defensive tools. They're very different from each other. Should I learn to use them one at a time or use each one every time my instructor and I go shooting? My experience level is about 20 rounds above zero. I now have a Smith & Wesson 910, a High Point 995, and a Charles Daly Field Tactical 12-gauge shotgun. That's a nice you know, handgun, carbine. Shotgun uh, selection there. For those who don't know, the 910 is a 9mm handgun made by Smith & Wesson that is uh, based on what was the original, uh, the 915, their model 915. And both of those are very similar in form and function to a uh, 1911 style. They're not a 1911, but they're similar in style. For a person like me that's a 1911 shooter, it's a gun that feels... Very nice in the hand and, and what have you. Okay, so the question is, do I, do I work on all these 
things together, this shotgun, this handgun, and this, this rifle carbine, or pistol carbine, um, pistol caliber carbine, uh, at the same time, or do I master one and move on to the other? And, well, you don't master one and move on to the other because uh, I've been shooting in earnest since I was nine years old. Um, if you let me count BB guns since I was five years old, right? But nine years old, I've been working with firearms. I'm a master of nothing as far as I'm concerned. I think I'm a damn good shot. I'm very proficient, but I'm not a master. So, uh, and, and Tammy doesn't use that word, but sometimes there's people like, I'm going to get like to where I have complete knowledge of this one, then I'll move on to that one. I, I think that one of the great things about becoming a firearms enthusiast is working with different frames and different weapons and different calibers and different gauges. And that keeps things interesting and fun. And if we're interested and we're having fun and we're doing so responsibly and we're doing so along with quality instruction, which I'm very happy to hear Tammy has, then we're going to learn. See, we're actually going to learn better if we're having fun. We're going to learn better if we're interested. So if variety provides interest and entertainment, it will also enhance learning. There's some other things I kind of want to give advice to people like Tammy, not just Tammy that asks the question. People are new to firearms. A lot of times you'll see a person like me or any other person that's, that's just relatively experienced with firearms. And someone will hand them a gun that they've never seen that maker model before. They've just never seen that model. And very quickly they'll open the action, they'll clear it, they'll check it out, and they may even begin some form of field stripping or disassembly or function checking or, or what have you. And you'll think, how does that person know? How does that person know? You know, how to swing that cylinder out of that revolver or where to release the magazine from. And, and the reality is it's all pattern recognition. Most guns work very, very similarly. And ergonomics, or how the hand works, the eyes work, the actions work, are so similar because we're all human beings, and a gun is a gun, right? It's got some sort of either hand grip and or stock, right? It's got a trigger, it's got a breech, it's got a barrel, and it's got some sort of an action. And that action allows for rounds to be loaded and unloaded or advanced, So once you know that, you look at a shotgun and go, that's a pump shotgun. That's a double barrel shotgun. That's a, so it's brake action. So once I know what a brake action is, I can look at a double barrel, under and over, uh, side by side, single shot, anything that's a brake action shotgun, I know there has to be a way for it to break open and for it to close back and lock. Then there has to be some mechanism for cocking it. Some, they cock on close, and basically when you when you load it and close it, it's got hidden firing pins. Some have a hammer. There's a safety mechanism. I need to locate that. If you if I look at a handgun, and it's a semi-auto handgun, well, it's magazine-fed. There's got to be a magazine. It's probably in the handle, right? There has to be a release for it. It would probably be if it's for a right-hand shooter somewhere that the, the thumb of the right hand can actuate it. It's probably right where it is on almost all of them. And then there'll be some that break the rules. Where, okay, now I have to figure this out. Like the Ruger Mark II, or the target pistol, 22 target pistol, it, it has a release at the bottom. Right? It's weird, but yet I know it's there, so I know I can find it. And I can look at, well, this, this action's a little bit different. It's like a plunger. So what I'm trying to say, a little bit roundabout, is the first thing I think you should do is start to familiarize yourself with the functionality of all three of these weapons. Their patterns. 
you know, do they lock back, right? Or do they not lock back? If they do lock back, how they're released if they're a semi-auto, right? Um, what ammo do they use? How is it loaded? How is it unloaded? How do you render the weapon safe? And if you have clear weapons, and I can't emphasize this enough, making sure they're clear, make sure they're clear again, and make sure they're clear one more time, and then make sure the room you're in doesn't even have any ammo for them, then you can just sit at home and over and over play with the functionality of the weapon. How is it released? You can get some snap caps, which are plastic round dummy rounds, so you can load and unload. And I recommend you do that with all of your weapons. Get comfortable with the weapon. Understand the weapon. Get comfortable shouldering the weapon if it's a long gun or bringing the weapon to bear if it's a handgun. And you should be doing that in addition to what you're doing with your instructor. And then I'm also a big fan of, I don't really want to get in the way of your instructor. So assuming you have an instructor with a curriculum, follow their curriculum. Uh, most instructors are good at what they do or they don't have customers for very long. But here's the reality. You should probably spend the preponderance of your initial time becoming familiar with the weapon that you're most likely to use. You're in Georgia. So that means that you can get a concealed carry permit. Um, now, the 910 is actually a full-size handgun. It might not be the most comfortable handgun for you to carry, but assuming that you're going to carry it, it will be the one that you have most often at your disposal should it become necessary to use it. It also is the one that makes the most sense when something like this happens. There's a knock at the door. There's a person at the door. You don't want to just tell them to go away or pretend they're not there. You think they might have some information that's important to you or what have you, and you need to go answer the door. You're going to look through the door. You're going to ask them who they are. You're going to do everything you're supposed to do. But you still just think, hey, I'm a lady. I'm at home alone. Uh, or even I'm, I, I do the same thing here, by the way, guys. I answer the door. I'm probably armed. It's much easier to conceal the fact that you're armed with a handgun so that you don't upset somebody who was never a threat to you or tip your hand to somebody who may be. So I say, from a, see, because use the word defensive. The most likely defensive tool is the handgun. So that's where to start with the most effort, but bring the other two along. Um, and just kind of go from there with it. But another thing that I advise you to do is don't be intimidated by ass clown um, people at like gun sales stores and stuff. Find a good gun shop that respects you and like feels like, hey, this lady's going to give us business over the years. And go in and look at guns. Uh, go to gun ranges, talk to people, look at their guns. Learn the patterns. This is especially for new, really very new shooters. Learn. A pump shotgun is going to have a release for the pump. Here's a model, old Model 12 Winchester. Where's the release? Here's an 870. Where's the release? A semi-auto shotgun has a, it's probably going to have a lockback and a release. How does it lock back? Where's the release? Where's the safety? This is a Browning A5. This is a Remington 1100, right? Where is that on this gun? A, an AR-15 has a safety. It's a little bit different than just about any other gun out there. Where is it? How does it work? How does it function? How does it disassemble? How do you field strip it? How do you clean it? Learn as much as you can about as many guns as possible, and you'll find yourself so quick, you'll be, you'll be surprised how quick a person can go from just getting experience with a handful of firearms, and you hand them a firearm that they've never seen before. They don't even know what it is. They don't know who makes it. 
have to look at the barrel to see what it is. And can go, oh, let's clear it. All right, yeah, here's the safety. Okay, here's how you load it. Take it outside, bang, 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 reload. Deal with malfunctions. Now, there's a learning curve, but it's like a car. There's basic functionality of a car, and one may have the cruise control in a different place, the blind, uh, the, the high beams in a different place, uh, the ergonomics laid out a little bit differently, it feels a little bit differently, the seat's a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller, a little higher, a little lower. But if you've rented cars, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You get into a car, and let's say you drive the same thing every day, and you drive an SUV. You go out and rent a car, and you rent a full-size uh, sedan. It feels different, it drives differently, the controls are different. Uh, you feel a little funky, a little unsure of yourself, you pull out, you get your directions, you get on the road, and five minutes later, it's like you've been driving it your whole life. That's how, that, that's how you want to take this introduction to firearms. So you become co comfortable with anything that ever comes into your hands. All right, hopefully that helps Tammy. Let's move on. And uh, real quick, I want to remind you again that Saturday... Uh, for those of you especially that are near the local area, the Dallas-Fort Worth local area, I am running a Work with Jack weekend. We call them on Saturdays. We're going to be doing some work in my fruit orchard and doing some sheet mulching and some repurposing of some fencing. It's going to be really cool. We're going to be serving, I think, brisket and sausage. Uh, I'll have some homemade stuff out for you, some adult beverages. I think today I'm going to go ahead and make some root beer. Because uh, some of you, uh, some of the people already come and are bringing kids, and I know there's a little kid in all of us. And I say root beer, I mean good old fashioned soda. So I'm going to make some of that up too for the, the kegerator, and I got to get that in there today if it's going to be carbonated by Saturday. But if you want to know more about this and come out, uh, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. It'll be the first post below today's episode, and I'll have a link in today's show notes so you can come as well. Uh, it is uh, 15 bucks or 25 bucks for a family rate, and if you're a single, you know, one parent coming with kids under 14. Uh, they're free, all right, and it'll be fun. Uh, last question of today is an, another interesting one. I've done whole shows on uh, grill selection, but I have an email from a guy that says that he has been exposed to the grill known as the Big Green Egg. And this is from Chris from Minnesota. He says, I want a better smoke smoker slash charcoal slash wood grill. But I do not want to sell a kid and eat to get something decent. I fell in love with my buddy's big green egg after one steak, a steak that cost $10 at a local market, a steak that tasted better than a $50 filet mignon I had at high-end steakhouse. I priced out the green egg, and again, does anyone need a kidney? I have two. I looked online to see if I could find a few DIY projects and dribbled on this and some Mother Earth news for a stove oven grill smoker cooker made with uh, fire brick and uh, cinder block, which I'll put a link to because I'm not really going to discuss that. Is this a project worth doing, or should I save my pennies and just get the egg, or are there other options out there? I have a 16-inch bucket-style smoker uh, that I like, but I would like to graduate to something better. Thanks, Chris from Minnesota. Okay, so if you're eating a steak off the green egg, you're not really smoking it. You're, you might be using some low heat to finish it, cook it through, and getting some smoke character into it. But you're not smoking it like you would with a sidebox smoker or um, a bucket-style smoker or what have you. You're cooking it, okay? And let's talk for a second what makes the egg. And for those that haven't seen one yet, you've lived under a rock. It's a big round grill. It's, 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 it's shaped like an egg. It's greenish shit, and it's made of very thick ceramic. What makes it do such a good job at the things that it's really great at? And it's a, it's a couple things. One is the insulation itself. The insulation 
allows you to run a low temperature and bring it up to an oven-like environment with smoke and moisture and hold very even temperatures for a long time. Okay, I'm going to have big green egg people crying foul at me, but I want to tell you, in all honesty, except for the smoke part, what else does that that we all own? It's called an oven. It's called an oven. And if you take a nice thick piece of steak and get your gas grill really hot or a cast iron griddle on your stovetop, though the grill outside would do this better, especially if we make a little fire of some wood chunks and we hit and we sear the outside of that steak. It looks bloody raw in the middle, but we seared the outside over those smoky chips or hardwood charcoal or lump char, whatever it is. And we have a beautiful 250-degree oven waiting inside, and we set it on a nice little rack, and we put it in that oven, and we hold it at that temperature for as long as we would put it under that egg. You're going to get a fabulous result. I'm not saying to do just this. I'm just saying this is one example of what the egg has done is given people a technique, and it's not the technology as much as the technique. It's that the technology requires the implementation of the technique. It is the, the cooking of the outside of a steak and then the slow finishing in this moist, even temperature environment with this beautiful smoke. The egg also lets you do things like if you're smoking, you really have the, temp the, the, the coals right below you, but you have a ceramic plate that you put down and then you put your grill grate down and then the heat has to kind of go around that plate and it gets this even, beautiful smoke. And it's very good at what it does. I'm not poo-pooing the green egg. And it is the best grill on the market like itself. There's a lot of clones now. There's nothing better. But if you don't want to sell a kidney and spend $800, $900, $1,100 on a green egg, there is a reasonable alternative. And again, all the egg people are going to flip out. But I'm sorry, it, you, this is reality. There is a lot of them out there that instead of being made with ceramic for insulation, they're made with clay. And this is almost every clone that I've seen so far is clay versus ceramic. And sooner or later, with the heat involved, they crack. Now, this is actually the original technology. This is a Middle Eastern cooking technology. This isn't new. This is old. It's just been modernized and made into an expensive appliance. There is one exception to this that I found that I believe has longevity in it and is 90% as good as the egg, at least. 90% in the quality of product that it can produce for you. It is called the Char Griller Acorn Commando Cooker Charcoal Barbecue Grill and Smoker. Black. Also comes in red uh, and brown. Doesn't come in green, I guess. No? Doesn't come in green? I can't find it. I got black, I got brown, I got red. I'm going to put a link to this thing on Amazon. I don't think that many people will be buying it from Amazon after what I'm going to tell you next. But um, if you do and use that link, I'll make a couple bucks and I appreciate it. So what makes the Char Griller Acorn, and it's A-K-O-R-N, okay, a product that I would recommend as a lower cost version is, number one, it'll give you 306 square inches of cooking space, which, which puts it right between the large and the extra large uh, green egg. It's like right in between those two. 
So it's a good cooking area. Those are going to be $1,000 plus grills. Okay. This sells on Amazon for $349 with free shipping. $349 with free shipping. You can also have someone come to your house and assemble it for you for $54.99 and take the garbage away on Amazon with this grill if you want to. Okay. So even shipped and assembled, it's, it's half the price and then some of the green egg. But being cheaper is not enough for me. The big deal with this is it's made with 22 gauge steel on the inside and the outside and the insulation is sandwiched between the steel. So even, I don't know what the insulation is, but even if it's clay, it ain't gonna matter if it cracks because it's sandwiched between 22 gauge steel. Now, the purest egg person will say, but the interaction of the ceramics on the inside and the exchange of moisture and flavors is, sure, sure. And if you got $1,200 in your back pocket, burning a hole in it, and you want one, and you've made a decision that that's what you want, great. But I'm going to tell you that if there is a difference in steaks cooked by the same person the same way on both of these grills, that the average person will never be able to discern it any more than they can discern, such as an advanced sommelier can discern, uh, this bottle of wine came from uh, the grapes at this vineyard, but they were going on the north slope versus this side was on the south slope or some shit like that. That's great that you can do that. Most of us can't. So it doesn't really matter. So if I was going to try to get as close to the egg as possible without selling a kidney, this is what I would buy. I haven't bought one, and I can give you some reasoning. Uh, when I want to smoke something, I either use a great big sidebox smoker, uh, or a lot of times when I'm smoking just a single roast or some ribs, or I do this, I'll tell you, I do this with steak too, just a second. I use a $149 22-inch Weber kettle grill. Plain old, the one that looks just like people were using back in the 1930s. Okay? And a little product that goes inside it called a Smokinator. A Smokinator is, uh, I'll have to look it up, but it's like $65. Bucks. Call it $70 bucks with shipping. And it gives me the diversity, because now I have that grill, I can just use it as a grill. I can pop a Smokinator and use it as a smoker, or I can pop a Smokinator in there, And right over the smokinator, I got plenty of heat. I can sear that big thick steak. I can move it over to the smoker off side of heat. And I can set my grill up with half open vents on the top and bottom and run that warm, beautiful, moist 250 degrees with smoke across a steak. And I'm not saying that I'll make a steak in my, with my smokinator grill combo that will be as good as your green egg. Because as good is subjective. I'm saying that I, when I serve it to you, you won't bitch about it. You'll think it's a fantastic steak. Okay, So the Weber Kettle Grill, with the addition of the Smokinator, is yet another option. You can do things like that with a gas grill, with a little packet of wood chips on one side, sear it, move it over, use indirect heat while your wood chips smoke, and make a fantastic steak. Okay, There's lots of ways to make fantastic steaks. I would be more likely to go out and buy a middle-grade Weber gas grill for six to $700. Good quality Weber gas grill than to invest over $1,000 in a ceramic bowl. Again, I know some of you are like, Jack, if I made you one, I understand it makes a fantastic result. But how much money am I willing to pay for a steak? 
And is that all I'm going to do with it? And what other tools are available to get these things done? Now, I want to give you guys a technique to make cheap, tough steak really, really good. The first rule is get thick cuts, three quarters to one and a quarter inches. The second rule, it's going to freak you out, is to cover it, absolutely cover it in coarse salt, like kosher salt or coarse sea salt. Cover it. To leave it covered for one hour per inch and then immediately wash it, rinse it off, and then cook it, seasoned however you want, obviously back off the salt from that point. It will not taste like a salt brick. So if you did a half-inch steak, which I don't advise using this technique, by the way, you would do it for 30 minutes. A one-inch steak, you would do for one hour. A three-quarter-inch steak, you would do for 45 minutes. An inch-and-a-quarter steak, you do for one hour and 15 minutes. So what you do is you take your steak, you let it come up to room temperature, you set it out on a cutting board, you cover one side with salt, You flip it over, you cover the other side with salt. You can, when you, when you go to flip it, you can kind of touch the salt a little bit. Don't rub it in though. Just kind of just touch it so that when you turn it, most of it stays there and, and give it again an hour and then rinse it. When you do this the first time, you know, convince yourself with a, with a tougher cut of meat, but I've done, I'm going to do this tonight with New York strip. I got two beautiful New York strips sitting in the, the sink right now that are about an inch thick. And I love New York Strip because it's a good flavorful steak, but it's it's not quite as tender as like a top sirloin. Feel the meat before you do this. Just the texture of it. Kind of pull at it and look at the pores in it. And after you do the salting technique, do it again and you'll see that it's all like it already feels tender before you've cooked it. And then cook it right. Because there's only a couple ways to cook steak. There's there's really well there's you know raw steak steak tartare would have you okay but then there's rare like bloody red in the middle right and then there's like you know medium rare and there's medium and then there's like, medium well and there's ruined and medium well is getting really close to ruined steak should be pink steak should be red steak should not be gray so don't overcook your steak. And I'll tell you why many people overcook steaks. One is just this stupid fear that we have. Steak can be eaten raw if you want to, okay? But let's assume it can't. It needs to be cooked. What really freaks people out is blood flowing out of the steak. If you have blood flowing out of the steak, no matter how rare it is, you didn't let it rest long enough. It's this obsession people have with eating food while it's hot. Get down, eat it before it gets cold, okay? With a steak, it needs at least five to ten minutes to rest, maybe longer. And if you let that happen, the viscosity of the fluids will come down and become thicker and it won't flow. Some of the, some of the moisture will come out of the meat and it will stop. And when you slice it, you'll have, yes, pink meat, red meat, whatever, but you won't have like a plate with blood on it. And that freaks people out. And it doesn't freak me out, but I understand why. And if you're serving with potatoes or something, it runs, uh, right, okay, let your meat rest. But try the salting technique. And realize that many times these, these people that are cooking great meals, it's not the technology, it's the technique. 
As we wrap up today, if you like this show, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support this show at 18.3 cents an episode. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Uh, and if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, active duty, or prior service, you qualify for a discount. Just email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. And I want to start today also featuring uh, one, one person a day from our TSPC business directory. You can learn more at tspbiz.com, tspbiz.com. Uh, today we have Honey Locust Home is a blog and online store that features gardening tips and permaculture. They have a great line of handmade artisan soaps. You can check those guys out at honeylocusthome.com. And uh, with that, we're ready to wrap up today. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Again, we are working under the new format. It gets us into the content faster, trying to get more diversity, especially into the uh, Monday and Thursday shows for you by being more selective with the stuff that I screen. Hope you enjoyed that today. And uh, always ending with a song and a few closing thoughts. Today's song has, you know, no big deep meaning or anything. It's just really some old great music. Um, Kind of the beginning of where country and, and rock really started to kind of cross over a little bit. And, and prior to even bands that really did that well and made country music what it is today, like Alabama. This is old school here. How about Ronnie Millsap? And how about the song Smoky Mountain Rain? Uh, when I was a kid, I remember at one time that song being like the biggest song that was around. And uh, there's a reason for it. It's great, authentic, wonderful music. So no big special message at the end of today's show. Just a great old song for you. Mr. Honey Mouse Up with Smoky Mountain Rain. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. I thumb my way from L.A. back to Knoxville. Found out those bright lights ain't where I belong From a phone booth in the rain I called to tell her I've had a change of dreams, I'm coming home But tears filled my eyes when I found out she was gone Smoky That he was going as far as Gatlinburg I climbed up in the cab all wet and cold and lonely I wiped my eyes and told him about her I've got to find her, can you make these big wheels burn?
can't blame her for letting go A woman needs someone warm to hold I feel the rain running down my face I find her no matter what 